Coming up next is Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. You're listening to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with me, Jerry Pives, on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Listen to all three segments of this show here. The first segment is the session where we explore their past, their present, and what gets them up in the morning, what's influenced them, what makes them tick. In the second segment, you hear me giving 20 to 30 minutes of some useful little tips and stories that can help us navigate through the tough times in our lives. And in the third segment, well, you get music with meaning. That's a treat for having come all the way through this far with me. This is where my guest shares the tracks of music that describe the arc of their lives and the pieces of music that take them right back to those special times in their lives. So listen, to get the full musical quality of this show, you need to listen either on Tuesday at 1 o'clock or at 10 p.m. and Saturday at 11 a.m. Any other time, if you get the replays, then you're going to get a version without the music because of copyright laws. So if you want to hear the music, which is a big part of this show, then listen in at Tuesday 1 p.m. and 10 p.m. and Saturdays at 11 a.m. And if you know anyone in your local community who's an inspiration to you or contributes and makes the life of your community better, a hidden gem, an unsung hero, I'm not interested in the rich and famous. I want to have real people. I want to have people from your community, local people, unknown people. Let's learn from the best people in Kiwi life, in the New Zealand that we wish to have. Let's find the very best people, the people that make a difference, and let's find out what makes them tick and let us all become better people as a result. Send their email and your reason for nominating them to inbox at realitycheck.radio. And don't forget to send me an email telling me how you're getting on with the show. What are you liking? What are you enjoying? And send that also to inbox at realitycheck.radio. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to another Tuesday afternoon for your sixth episode of Real People with me, Jerry Pives. What treat have I got lined up for you today, you ask? Well, in my hunt for hidden gems and unsung heroes to invite into the psychotherapist chair, I invited a true local Wanaka hero of mine. And listen, if you're getting bored of my selections, then just write in to inbox at realitycheck.radio and nominate someone in your local community. Send me their email in an email that you send, giving me your reason for nominating them. I'm not interested in the rich and famous. I'm interested in the unsung heroes and hidden gems in your community. Meanwhile, in the absence of a single recommendation from a single listener, I invited a true local Wanaka hero of mine called Chris Nell. Now, although I knew him from attending one of his regular groups, I had no idea what we would uncover once we got down to it. Oh boy, stay tuned if you want to travel with me and Chris and his ancestors through deep Afrikaans history where we go from the Netherlands to Zambia, then to modern-day Zimbabwe, and finally to South Africa before Chris landed right here in New Zealand. Stay tuned if you want to hear a first-hand account of the expulsion and overthrow of so many Boer farmers in the revolutions that took place in both Zambia and what was then called Rhodesia. 
If you want to learn how to survive stress and trauma, discover with me how Chris and his family did it. There are some top tips for us all here. And after that, stay in the room to hear my reflections of trauma, and in particular, the physiology of grief. That's right, the physiology of grief, how our bodies need to know what has happened and how traditional societies have retained a true wisdom about this, a wisdom that modern society, sadly, has almost forgotten completely. And don't forget, after my reflections, we will hear Chris's top tracks of music that have accompanied him through his life in the final and third segment of his show, Music with Meaning. So get your knife and fork ready to dig into a great feast of psychology, human history, and some great, great music, all aiming to understand just what it is that makes us all tick. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Chris Nell into the psychotherapist chair with me, Jerry Pives. Chris, welcome to this program, Real People. Let's get stuck in by asking you to give a little picture of your life here in Wanaka. Tell us what your day is like and and where you are and who you are and, and what you're doing. So my wife, Uta, and myself, we are managing the Zula Lodge in Albertown, which is, uh, you could probably say, a suburb of Wanaka. It's just on the other side of Mount Iron. And the Zula Lodge, most Kiwis say Zulu Lodge, but it's not. It's not African. It's Zula. And uh, it's a backpackers. It's just basically a backpackers with um, sort of a lodge backpackers combination. It's a beautiful place. We just love the place. We're so proud to, and uh, privileged to be able to manage it. And uh, we're always looking to welcome guests to the Zula. That's what we do here. And how long have you been uh, at Zula, Chris? Yeah, it's been yeah, just over five and a half years now. Can't believe it. It feels like yesterday we came. Um, time's just flown so fast, but yeah, wonderful time that we've had here at in Wanaka. What a privilege! So, one of the reasons I was keen to interview you, Chris, was because I came across you, as you know, um, because I heard about your Bible study groups, your Bible study evenings, and I came, I came along to them, and I so I found it so refreshing for the way in which you were able to go through the Bible with us and transport us back into the milieu, the atmosphere of the Middle East at the time of Christ and before and the, the incredible history in the Middle East. For me, it was quite refreshing. I'd never quite walked into anyone who could as it were, capture the atmosphere of those times. And it really shone a new light for me. And I saw many, many people in that Bible study class from all around the area, from different backgrounds, different religious kind of traditions. And um, I just wondered, how on earth did you end up doing that? <laughs> yeah, Jerry, what, what a question. My goodness, where do I even start, you know? Um, so let's just go back about the Zula. The Zula is actually, interestingly enough, an Arabic word, which means place of refuge or 
place of hospitality. Um, so, yeah, and this just really helps to coin what the Zula is about. You know, it's a it's a place where we really want to create. Uh, we want to create a safe space where people really feel safe, welcome, and people from all nationalities. Um, it just so happens that the name attracts a lot of people from the Middle East. You know, uh, Jews, Arabs. Uh, we've had people from all over the world come and stay with us, which has been absolutely fantastic. And all of them would ask, "What is? Why do you call it the Zula?" You know, because for them. It just rings a bell and say, this is unique. So the name itself has caused, has brought about a huge uh, attraction to to people from, you know, specifically from the Middle East, uh, Israeli and uh, Arabs. So it's it's just a really wonderful thing to host them. But coming back to your question about the Bible studies, um, you know, it's started by chance and i just want to say first of all the zula lodge is not a christian backpacker it is just a normal backpacker happened to be run by two christians and um we just started a small bible study you know just a few people who were interested in the jewish background of our faith and this Bible study just suddenly just grew and grew, and we've been going for, you know, I thought it was going to take us two, three, four weeks, and we'd be done. But we've been going now for oh, probably good on four years. And I think what makes us a little bit different is that we really go into the Hebraic backgrounds. In other words, at the time when the New Testament was written, what was it like in the state of Israel, in the country of Israel, the time that Jesus walked in Israel? What was the culture? What was the geopolitics? All these things that played a role, had a huge influence on the audience, the, the first century Jews, and also had an influence on how Jesus portrayed or communicated to his audience. And if we look at the, the gospel writers, you know, we can see how each of them have a different audience in mind. And Matthew specifically, you know, he's writing to the to the Jews. So to really understand Matthew, we have to step back 2,000 years and step into the first century Israel. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I've been fortunate, believe me, it's not my own intelligence that brings these things out. I've been fortunate to have access to um, real scholars who have been studying this. So, you know, I'm just I'm just getting their material and I'm just sort of facilitating it. Again, to get back to your question, why is this different? I think it's just our approach. That's a unique approach. It's And, you know, we're not um, bringing it from the perspective of a specific church or denomination. This is absolutely independent and just doing it from an inductive Bible study 
method saying, let's look at what the scripture says, say, what is the background? Let's understand it from that perspective. And I think it absolutely describes what I found when I came across you and was able to attend your Bible study groups. And it struck me almost immediately that I was very welcome there, regardless of my background and regardless of my beliefs, in fact. Here was a fantastic opportunity just to understand what the words mean in the context of the culture. And it remains really fascinating to do this. And I think it's a real service that you offer, Chris. I know you don't charge anything for people to come along. It's something you're able to offer and gift to to all of us here. And I believe it makes a real contribution to the life of this community in all sorts of ways. A, A group of people coming together regularly, sharing ideas, We end up talking about our life. In fact, more than anything, it reminded me of a Voices for Freedom group, meeting and come together on a regular basis and sharing our thoughts and our ideas. But it gave us a focus on the, it was a shared interest in, you know, what is probably the most important book in the history of mankind, you know, that Mm -hmm. if there's one book we really ought to be knowing about, I think, in this, it would be that book, (laughs) the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with you. And, you know, as you would know, Jerry, what is so, so lovely about our group is that we come from so many different backgrounds and it's no click whatsoever. We just welcome people with different opinions. We love to have people put their opinions on the table, their thoughts, their, their understanding. And, you know, we can wrestle with these things and and we can walk away and still completely disagree with each other, but still have that respect, that love, and that enjoyment of just enjoying fellowship, enjoying community, and just loving people. That's what it's about. That's the main thing, to love, you know, and to just create that safe environment where we can talk about these things. Isn't that just, yeah. Maybe it was was that your observation as well? I hope so. One hundred percent. And Chris, how old are you? Oh my goodness! Now you're getting personal. Hey, I, I've stopped counting, but I think I'm sixty. <laughs> you're sixty. Just for the listeners, you know, you're talking about a lovely big teddy bear of a guy who does absolutely um, exude the the warmth and friendliness and welcoming that you can you can hear even over you know over the sound waves. And you know, I cannot think of a better personality to just make people feel at home and welcome. And if ever I met someone who was doing something for which he was almost perfectly trained and qualified by life, probably more than anything, um, then you are that person. You just emanate welcome in your whole personality, Chris. So it's just great to have a chance to talk to you about what you do. Oh, you're so kind. But, you know, it is about people, isn't it? You know, if, if we go through life without loving people and caring for people, my goodness, what have we been doing on this earth? I think we would have missed something really important. Are you telling me that there is something more important than real estate in New Zealand? <laughs> well, okay, second most then. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the reasons for this program, Chris, is I just like to inquire and delve into 
what makes people tick? And I'm already getting a very strong sense of that. I wonder what it is that gets you out of bed in the morning. Oh, yeah. What is it? You know, all the 101 jobs that needs to be done. Come, let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Toilets need to be cleaned. You know, beds need to be made. There's just so many things that get you out of bed. But for us, it's really a joy getting out of bed and say, wow, here's another beautiful day. Look at this. Another day full of packed with opportunities. Um, Another day of just enjoying life, being a blessing. Um, And just to see, you know, we don't wake up and say, oh, today I'm going to do exactly this and this and that. You know, there's the basic stuff. But every day brings a surprise. Every day brings something different. And that is what I absolutely love about my life, our lives here at, at the Zula Lodge. There is no one day that's like the other. And I thrive on that. I just love the surprise and the variation in each day. That's That to me is what really gets me going. And you mentioned a team. Does that mean you have a group of people that you're working with there at Zula Lodge? Yeah, yeah. So, um, of course, it's my wife and myself. We, you know, she's my slave and I'm her slave. And uh, we're just loving it. Uh, We form a wonderful team. But um, we also have, in the summertime, volunteers who come, you know, who share our hearts, have the same, just burden for people. And, uh, you know, so it's an opportunity for us to just bring them in under our wings and um, walk a road with them, you know, because these are a young lions, lion cubs. They, you know, they they still starting to growl. And, you know, for myself as an old lion, I can say, you know, I've learned this lesson in life. I've learned that lesson in life, you know, and just encourage them. You know, it's so beautiful. Just encourage them to to get their focus right, to, yeah, priorities right, and to encourage them in their walk of, of, of life. It's not always easy. There's there's many heartaches. There's many challenges. But at the end of the day, it's a beautiful world and a beautiful life that we have. You sound like you got a bit of a, a what I would call an elder role, a role of the elder, which has been fast disappearing in our society. But the chance mm-hmm. for um, older people to share what they've learned to younger people, would that be an accurate description of part of what you're doing there? Yes, 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 absolutely it is. And, you know, Jerry, you're so right. Um, that is, that's a, been a gift that is maybe disappearing um, or not as strongly emphasized as it should be. I think there's nothing like an elder, a parent, um, an uncle, um, just somebody who's walked through life, who's gained experience, gained wisdom to support the younger people. Um, You know, the world that they're growing up in, I can hardly uh, imagine. You know, it's so vastly different from my world. But still, that doesn't mean that I don't have anything to say to them. Um, On the contrary, it could mean even more. But the young people need guidance. 
They're looking for guidance. They're looking for for strength, for support, for encouragement. Who doesn't need encouragement? You know, especially amongst these young ones. And uh, sometimes the world can be portrayed so negatively. You know, ah, the world's about to end and it's this problem, that problem. And to say, no, 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 no. It's we've, we've been through world wars. We've been through all kinds of famines um, and pestilences. It's nothing new. It's fine. Just keep on walking uh, and stay positive and, you know, just basic things to get them going because they need it. They need it. So true. I'm sure the listeners have noticed, Chris, that there's a slight twang to your speech. and Your speech has a very distinct pattern to it. Tell us a little bit about where you come from and where you originate from. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, as, as you can hear, this is a real African. Um, I was born in, in Zambia. Um, and, you know, so that is sort of going up to central South Africa, south of the continent of Africa. And um, my my dad was a farmer there, you know, and he was a really a good farmer. He loved his farming. It was a wonderful farm we lived on. And um, then I did my schooling in what was still Rhodesia those days. And as an adult, I moved to to South Africa. Um, so, yeah, it's, I've been – I'm pretty much an African. <laughs> yeah, that's my background. We've been living – we've had the privilege of living in New Zealand now for, what, going on 15 years so this really has become home for us, and uh, we just so love it. But, yeah, I'll never lose that twang. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know whether twang is the right way to describe a, an African accent. I actually rather love it. But I just wondered what um, what it was like for you in Zambia as a young boy, and, and where did you go to school? Give us a little picture of what your life was like back then. Oh, look, those were just glorious days. Um, Growing up as a as a white kid on a, in a farm in Africa, um, all the little black kids they were my mates. I could speak their language long before I could speak English, and uh, we would just go out into into the fields. And I had a, a little pellet gun or a BB gun or air gun. What you know, everybody has a different uh, name for this, and. We would pretend we're the big hunters, you know, and we'd go out hunting rabbits and mice. So we were just out, you know, every day get, just getting dirty, me and my, my African friends. And it was an absolutely idyllic, idyllic life until the day that we had to just get out. Unfortunately, uh, politics played a big role, you know, and there was a huge insecurity Um going around and uh yeah sadly we just had to leave very quickly and that's when um as a family we moved relocated to what was then Rhodesia um so yeah you know a, a wonderful life ended abruptly and uh but yeah so I did my schooling in in Rhodesia and that too even though there was you know the war the civil war they had started and just became more and more intense as the years went by 
that's had a huge impact on our lives. Um, there was a loss, you know, loss of life, friends who were killed in landmines and all kinds of horrific things. So, um, as you probably know, the history, Robert Mugabe eventually took over. He got power in in that country and became Zimbabwe. And a few years later, it was just absolutely tolerable. We just couldn't live there anymore because things had gone backwards so badly. The corruption was absolutely enormous. So um, once again, we had to just leave a country. And that is what took us to South Africa. Goodness, I just feel like we've landed in some of the most, you know, from a nice, gentle conversation in beautiful Wanaka and We've just we've just landed or or stepped on a landmine or, or of history. Really, we've dropped into uh, a, both a personal and a political story that still haunts Africa. I think and still haunts the world. Tell me, how old were you when you had to leave suddenly out of Zambia? What sort of age were you? Yeah, I was still a kid. I was only ten years old. So by that time, I'd already been Rhodesia in a boarding school. Um, Yes. So, but yeah, I was about 10 years old when we had to leave. And was that because there was danger? Yeah, it was just, you know, threats, threats to our lives. And uh, many other farmers also experienced the same. Many, many had to leave. They were just forced to leave. Um, Yeah, you know, sadly, nasty things started to happen and uh, it just became too dangerous. And there was a specific threat that caused my parents to say get out of here right now yeah so this was a personal threat made to your family Mm -hmm. yes yes yeah and i appreciate you sharing this because this is uh this is a very difficult time to be growing up and what you say is that in many ways you had this idyllic life and then suddenly it just all stopped for you is that with is that right yeah 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 absolutely well that you know that part that's you could say that chapter of my life just suddenly stopped quite abruptly yeah yeah, yeah. and so then you sort of went out of the frying pan into the fire by the sound of it you went into yeah. uh, were your family living in harare or around that area when yes. you went into school there yes yes they were they were living there and um you know my dad would have loved to go farming again but it just became too dangerous because of the war situation that we were living in um you know many of the farmers were targeted it was mostly the farmers who were targeted um so yeah from then on it was town life uh for us but you know even so, even though there was a war, we still had a wonderful, wonderful life. It was a beautiful country, beautiful weather, you know, beautiful countryside, wonderful people, um, you know, and there was, it sounds probably impossible, but there was a wonderful relationship, a, a good relationship between the white and the black population in general. Of course, you know, you, there were problem areas. And there was the war going on, like a civil war going on. But it wasn't, you know, um, how could I say? It wasn't that strong apartheid thing that was happening in South Africa at the time. 
it was very, very different there. And there was still a lot of respect and trust between the white population and a huge part of the black population. Uh, good friendships going on in that time, you know. So, yeah. So in spite of the negative, there was a lot of beautiful, a lot of positive as well. And tell us a little bit about what happened to you after you moved to South Africa and as a young man, what did you become interested in? What was your work? What was your life like as you once you got to South Africa? Yeah, well... Um, I mean, what year would this that, be, Chris? It was 1982 that we moved to South Africa. And in those days, um, the military was still compulsory because South Africa was also embroiled in its own war. So we were all, um, you know, it was compulsory to go to join the army, which I did. So that that took two, two and a half years out of my life. But my interest, um, probably just because of my background and my dad's influence, was um, was still farming. You know, I, I always desired to get back into farming. And um, so I went and did a, a diploma in those days in agriculture, uh, you know, studied that for a few years. And, yeah, after that, my life was always involved or mostly mostly involved in some aspect of agriculture. Um, it always remains very dear to my heart. Um, as a psychotherapist, Chris, I'm always very interested in our roots and in our background and how that influences us and what impact it has on us. Well, how did your family end up in Zambia, for example? And how, how did that come about? What do you know about your family's story? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Uh, look, I come from an Afrikaans family, so, you know, the Boers. And my mom and dad all grew up on, you know, just farms. But um, the area my dad grew up in was very drought-stricken. They they would often have droughts. It was a pretty hard area for farming. And in those days, I'm talking in the late 50s, middle 50s, that Rhodesia really opened up for, for the pioneers to go in and, you know, in inverted commas, to tame a country, you know, carve farms out of the bush, build infrastructure, um, create a nation in the country. So there were wonderful opportunities. And Zambia is just, oh, I mean, Zambia, all those countries are dream countries for farming, absolute dream countries. Yeah, you do have a lot of challenges. You could have droughts still. You could have floods, pestilences, but the opportunities were huge. So my dad, as a young man, grabbed that opportunity and um, just newly wed, they moved up into that part of the world and literally carved, you know, just plow down trees, pull down trees to go and plow, plow the soil. and. In spite of many difficulties, many setbacks, many challenges, they loved it and they made a huge, huge success of the farming enterprise, as did most other uh, people who went in, you know, uh, pioneers who went in. Um, so 
yeah, you know, the roots are still there. I'm still a Boer, an Afrikaner, and uh, that's who I am. And um, I'm really thankful for, you know, some beautiful um, culture, you know, that's that's come down the line from my family. There's been a great deal of prejudice against the Boers, and there's been a great deal of um, misrepresentation. It's not considered to be a great culture by many people in the world. And yet I wonder what you feel that you have taken or inherited from that tradition, from that background, from that Boer history, what you think has influenced you in any way or what you've taken from that culture and whether or not you think the world has judged the Boer culture fairly or not. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, it's not only us. It's many, many, many other cultures have been misrepresented and uh, misunderstood so it's you know it's <laughs> that's that's the way it is, but you know we we're just a very small minority group. We've always been a very small minority group, but yet a group that's made a massive, massive impact on the history and making of Southern Africa. Um, so right from the early days, and oh by the way, what does Boer mean? It simply means farmer. That's a direct translation. They were farmers, and that's what they did. They knew nothing else um, for for many, many, many years, at least, until the industries came up and they became, many of them became very successful businessmen. But, you know, they were, um, they eventually established Afrikaans universities, which were top-class universities, uh, recognized throughout the world. Um they also had, you know, we, we had individuals who made history, like uh, Christian Barnard, who was the first guy to do a heart transplant. So there were really outstanding individuals amongst the Boers, the farmers. But, you know, we all came from very humble backgrounds. Our, our ancestors, they would move with ox carts into the interior, fight wars. Um, many of them died. In this process, it was very, very tough times, but they would also always persevere and make a home where they settled down. All they wanted to do was just, you know, give me my piece of of soil where I can farm and let's live in peace. And what came of that, you know, because it's Dutch and French background, French uh, Huguenots, most of my family are from the French Huguenot side. So with that came a very Calvinistic background, uh, a deep emphasis on the Bible. Uh, that was very much the the background, the you know the strength of the people um, coming together, having their church meetings. So through that came a, a pretty conservative culture. And I'm definitely um, a product of that. You know, that's that's had deep, yeah, you know, uh, my roots run deep in that aspect. Just a very conservative, um, respectful culture. Um, I hope that makes sense, Jerry. 
Well, yes, and I'm thinking about what you're saying about these kind of deep Calvinistic roots. And I'm also thinking about the amount of trauma that even in your life, you've come through, you've come through some highly traumatic regions in Africa. Your family lost everything. It sounds like almost overnight, by the sound of it, your family lost the farm of, of backbreaking labor from your father. And did he get anything for his farm or did he literally walk away with nothing? No, he literally walked away with nothing. You know, just the clothes on their back and what they could get in the car and off they went. <laughs> yeah. and, and this and this after spending how many years building a highly successful farm? Oh yeah, 20 years easily. Yeah. And this was a farm that did what? What was the farm producing? Oh, we were producing um maize or what do you call it? A corn. Um, it was beef and uh, some other stuff but it was mainly a corn farm because that was a stable food for for the population you know it was very very highly sought after food um for africa and uh yeah they were wonderfully successful in in doing that how many people do you think your father's farm and the farm you grew up in how many people do you think that farm was feeding? Oh, that farm was feeding probably 20 to 30 people at least. And, you know, with all their children, you know, housing the families. Um, so we had a huge impact on on many people. Um, and, yeah, it was it was a really good, good setup. It was happy. Everybody was happy. Um, you know, we could provide schooling for them. We could provide uh, access to hospitals for them, good medical care. And uh, it was a very positive environment for those people who worked and stayed on the farms. And I'm wondering, when you talk about 30 people, do you mean, I'm thinking about what the farm produced as well in terms of the maize. How many, would that be, wouldn't it be a lot more than that? That seems a very small number to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. Those were just the people who worked on the farm. So they were employees who who worked on the farms. But, you know, we produced thousands of tons of maize that exceeded local consumption and was exported. So Zambia was a great exporting country. Um, it exported huge amounts of food, you know, maize, beef, um, not so much sheep. It wasn't a sheep growing area. but in those days, tobacco, tobacco was a massive industry. Many other things as well, you know, even fisheries. It became a rich exporting country. Agriculture was just fantastic, as was Rhodesia. You know, um, same. It's It had the potential to feed the whole of Africa. It was so, so good. Real commercial farming. It wasn't subsistence farming. It was real big commercial farms. Well, it sounds like a massive undertaking, and it sounds like, you know, 20 years of labor. Did you ever get to visit your farm later on in life? Did you ever get to see what had happened? Yes, I did. Uh, many, many, many years later, um, I did go back to the farm. And, you know, like so many other farms, it's just turned to nothing. Um, the people who took over the farm were unfortunately not able to, they didn't have the skills to carry on farming. So 
nature just took it back. You know, it just it looks pretty much like if you go through the farm now, you can't believe what used to be there. And um, sadly, the people are just um, living in abject poverty on the farm. You know, um, they've gone back to subsistence farming, just providing enough for them and hoping it will be a good year. So, yeah, you know, sadly, you know, and all the people that worked on the farm, they had to leave, you know, their source of income dried up. And heaven knows what happened to there. I don't. But things deteriorated drastically, you know, at that point when the commercial farmers were kicked out. That's happened in Zambia and Zimbabwe. And sadly, you know, many other countries in Africa as well. Um, it was the story in Kenya, Tanzania, where once commercial farmers could do a lot for the for the industry of the country. Um that just abruptly came to end. Yeah. This must have been heartbreaking. It must have been heartbreaking for you to revisit, to go back after many years and see what had happened to really all the incredible creative and hard work of your father and your mother. And, and really there is a whole generation of a whole generation of farmers, I, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was, Jerry, you know, but it also taught me wonderful lessons because, you know, going back, I was just wrestling with this. Um, why? You know, you always ask the question, why, why, why? Why is this? Why is that? But, you know, by God's grace, I suddenly had a revelation of forgiveness to absolutely forgive, you know, forgive, forgive everybody and everything, you know, and move on, move on. This isn't life. You know, we are not tied to a piece of ground, a piece of property, to a dream there. We're not tied to that. Life is so much bigger than that. And the greatest lesson I had to learn there and I'll say this again, it was only by God's grace that I could learn this, was that my destiny, my life is so much bigger than just the farm. There's such a bigger role that I'm called to play. And move away. Stop looking back. Just look ahead. So in spite of all the, the heartaches and the challenges, we just grew stronger and you know, I can say that from my whole family, my mom and dad as well. They didn't look back. They just said, well, that was great. That was a good innings. But um, what's next? What's next? Always what's next? And I know, I'm sure the listeners can really identify with us if we say life is full of challenges. You know, that was my challenge. But everybody else has equal or greater challenges. And just to forgive, forgive and say, hey, it's 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 no big deal. It doesn't mean anything. We're still alive. We still have life. And look at the new opportunities that we have. Had I stayed there, I would never have had the opportunity to come to Wanaka. Look what I have now. You know, it's so beautiful. We're so blessed. We're so privileged to, to have what we have now. 
And yeah, so looking back at that, there's no pain, no pain whatsoever. It's just good memories. I'm sure many listeners will be kind of applauding and really resonating with what you're saying, Chris, because, you know, in in my work, people often think that someone like a psychotherapist is dwelling on the past and going back and looking at all the terrible things. Um, but this, this isn't true at all. In fact, what strikes me is the reservoir of resilience that your family must have had. And to me, that speaks of enormous wisdom and depth of relationship with each other, with the land. There is, what do you think is the cause of such strong resilience in you and in your family to go through what many people listening with think, oh my God, 20 years, building a farm, building a life, and then literally overnight it being taken away and still mm -hmm. being able to move forward and be positive and be philosophical, to be quite stoic, if I might say so, in mm -hmm. that, hey, what's this, what can I learn here? You know, I'm, I'm hearing a very profoundly healthy resilience but what do you think gave your family your father your mother that kind of resilience what do you think is at the root of it mm. yeah it's a great question you know and i'm i am just the opposite than you i'm not a psychotherapist at all <laughs> but you know jerry it's it's interesting because it just the other day uh, a, a dear friend of mine and i were talking about this whole topic of resilience and he had just come from a bit of a um, trip up the West Coast to go back in his roots where his grandfather or great-grandfather worked in a mine. Um, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the mine, but it's very close to Greymouth. And the history of the mine he just relayed to me was incredible. and. The point of it is the resilience those people had, that generation had to just absolutely grit their teeth and just push forward. And how was it? Because those people had the greatest opposition, the greatest challenges, difficulties. Life was so hard for them. I mean, they were kids working in the mine. There was no other option. It was survival. If you're going to survive, you better start working and just grit your teeth, bite the bullets, and push on. And that's that's the resilience that built this incredible country that we're, we're living in. Um, it's the resilience that tamed Africa. And there's no way that we can build resilience without opposition, without backlash, without trouble times, without trauma in our lives, without sickness, without death. There's just no way you can build that resilience. But what, what is about us that when we are faced with these challenges, it makes the stronger stronger and the weaker weaker? And that is the big question. I think you're going to be able to answer that much better than I. But I just in my simplicity, I would say it's just the attitude we have and the faith 
that we have and the belief in tomorrow and a reason for living, a purpose for living to say, yep, challenging times, but hey, we're going to just push through this no matter what. And every time we get through this challenge, we're just stronger and deeper and life is more valuable than it was before. It feels to me sometimes that in the middle of all that toughness, of that getting through things, of that gritting your teeth, of surviving, we sometimes, well, we often don't get much chance to attend to the inner life. When by the inner life, I mean the life of the emotions, the development of our ability to form relationships, our ability to learn and grow and find wisdom. Many of the people I work with have been so crushed that they've forgotten that there is something called the spiritual path. And yet almost everyone I work with, as they become balanced, as they find support, as they don't have to deal with this on their own, as they have someone to walk with them through the valley of bones, it's it's like they start to discover with just a little bit of help that they are far more than mere survival. I often work in the middle of failure. I Mm. often work in the middle of collapse. I often work Mm. in the middle of what looks like a breakdown. Mm. And I'm reminded of that in the middle of that place, there's a doorway, there's an opening, there's a learning. Mm. And sometimes I think in the if we're having to survive all the time we don't have time or space or support to process and deal with what's happened in the past so in some respects we carry the past with us yeah. if we don't deal with it i almost sit on the opposite side of the fence to you and this is why this is such an interesting discussion you're describing yeah. you're describing a really powerful strong resilient kind of culture that gets on and and, Gary, and can i can i just interfere you you know it is you meant to be in the chair mate so i don't know why i'm talking so much (laughs) no 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 because what you're saying just helps me also think about these things and uh i am so wary of creating an impression that i'm such a tough strong guy because i'm not i really am not in all this i could just say praise god for family for friends who were always there to help me. You can't do these things alone. You can't go through this tough thing alone. And for me personally, my faith has been the most important, important aspect that has always carried me and grown me. You know, um, I just know through this that I could never do it alone. I'm not the tough guy. I'm everything but the tough guy. We need each other. You know, we we need people like yourselves, Jerry, to help us. Um, I think it's a noble thing you're doing just to help somebody just on this hurdle, over this hurdle. Okay, right, off you go again. Uh, We all need this in life. And one thing that for me has really been um, really important and uh, once again, uh, a really good friend of mine and I have been talking about this, and this is our identity. Who are we? And for me in my faith, I ask the question, who is my identity in Christ? 
And in that lies an incredible sea of new discovery. Um, who am I really? And, you know, to be, I think for anybody to be able to really clearly say, this is who I am, not because I'm so good, not because I'm so smart, or the way I look, or the amount of money I have, that doesn't matter anything. If you take all those things away, if you strip everything bare, what remains behind? What is the core? Who am I? And to me, that is, yeah. As I said, it's it's, it's an important thing that we need to wrestle with, Jerry. I think we're right on it now. Now I'm getting very excited by this conversation because I think unless you've had everything taken from you, you've never really lived. Because without all those props that make us think we're this or we're that or we're the other, if things are taken away, if you have suffered a catastrophic loss, then I think life begins when you start to ask yourselves we ask ourselves well who on earth am i who on earth am i when i do not have these false identities of of status or property or job or when everything is taken from you then life begins and i you know i i love the story of job in the bible yeah. for that oh totally. in many ways isn't that what that's about yeah, I hate that story. No, <laughs> but I don't want to be a joke. But yet, yes, it is such an important, important story. You know, it's not a story. It's it's a real happening. There's so much that we can learn and apply to ourselves, the suffering this man had to go and endure and the victory, the victory. That well, I, I'm in danger of talking to someone who I regard as knowing the Bible far better than I do. But that book sits in the middle of the Bible like a thorn amongst roses, doesn't it? It's like it says suffering, suffering, failure. And you see, I'm a little bit addicted to it. I, I have to confess, maybe there's something perverse about me, but I actually love it when things break down, because in yeah. those moments, we find chinks in the armor of our false images of ourselves and our false ideas. And in my treatment room, I see chinks of light coming through the brokenness that I see. And there's something very weird because, you know, when someone walks into my room and says, ah, oh, you know, I've had it, I've had it up to here. I've just, I'm over it. I just can't take anymore. I kind of rub my hands together in glee and go, whoopee, now we can really work, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's when we come to the end of ourselves, you know, that's it, right. Okay. There's nothing left. Mm. Who am I? What's in there? How can I rebuild? It's so important. It's so important. Yeah. And isn't it interesting how many people, when they reach those points, that's the time when people turn to the spiritual, where they turn to God, where they turn to something, where they realize, where we realize that we ain't all that we're made out to be, that we are insufficient in ourselves. Oh, totally, totally, Jerry. You know, um, it is. And I think this is why God allows us to go through these things so that we can realize it's not about us. The world doesn't revolve about us and our wants and our needs. We are just part and a very important, very precious, very, very loved part of his creation. And we have a role to play. And in that, we can 
finds incredible fulfillment. But it needs breaking down. It needs breaking down all these preconceived ideas, what we have. And if it's broken down and you've got nothing left, maybe that's a good place to start again. See, right, who am I really? What is my meaning? What's my purpose in life really? And as you say, that's where we realize that we're not only flesh, we are spirit. And the flesh is only temporary. It One day, this will turn to dust. But the spirit lives forever. I believe that with all my heart. It lives forever. And that is the part we really, really need to nurture. That determines what happens, you know, our lives, our bodies now. But it also is an eternal focus that we all need to become aware of and ask. Start asking the questions. Where am I going? What is my purpose? Who am I really? Is it just this flesh, this world, this the Porsche I'm yearning for, the next big property in Wanaka? Or is there more to life than just this? Wow. Wonderful words. The issue of suffering is in front of our eyes every day, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, if we, again, we just look back into the history of this country and see how people have suffered. Um, you know, just, just the mining relics around us. We go and look at the history of how they mined. The miners bringing women, children along. Just north of us, there's the town of Makarora, and there's such interesting history of those people who built the Hast Pass and the most incredible circumstances. And you know, it was families. They did the schooling there. It took them years to build this pass. How much of us have the grit to do that? Here we just jump in our cars and um, what, hour and a half later, we're in Hast. We had a beautiful drive, beautiful scenery. But what it took the generation ahead of us, before us, to do this. And so, as you say, New Zealand's got the same history than Africa did. People just working hard. And the question is, are we aware of it? Are we going to be the generation that two, three generations from now look back and say, thank goodness for this generation? They had the grits. They just persevered. And they gave us a better future. You know, that's big questions we need to ask ourselves. Do we have the same backbone than our fathers and forefathers did? And I think that's what brings us all the way through this history, these personal histories, your personal history, from the past into the present. And we look at the history of the last three years where so much was taken away from so many people, so much disruption, so much damage, so much trauma has been done. And we're only just beginning to see the impact of that on society. And I suppose I'm, I want this program to be a voice of hope that yeah. in the middle of the suffering of the last three years and the, the, terrible things that have been done to people that we can also look forward and say, this is a time for me to find my meaning, to find my purpose, to find my strength, and maybe even to find the source 
of where I get my life from. Where does my life force come from? And I mm. think that center, what is the center of me? And all the way through these programs, what keeps re-emerging is the importance of friends, of family, of community, of people. What is our meaning? What is our purpose? And I think mm. that what you've told me today and told the listeners today, Chris, is I think what gets you out of bed, if I might dare to suggest, is the meaning that your life has, that what gets you out of bed is the meaning of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Our lives are precious. Our lives are purposeful. We don't just exist. We're not amoebas. We are human beings with a purpose. And we've always got to keep that in mind, ahead of us, in front of us, and get out of bed with joy. Say, so let's use another beautiful day. Let's go for it. On that beautiful note, Chris Nell, I want to thank you for sharing your life and your journey with me and the listeners here in the psychotherapist chair. Thank you so much for sharing your life, your family, your past, your history, your ancestors, and sharing your story with us here. Chris Nell, thank you so much. Oh, Jerry, it was just a huge pleasure. And um, I just want to encourage you, carry on doing what you're doing. I thank you for, you know, all these years that I've been observing you, you know, for the work that you've been doing here. It's been awesome. You've helped so many people and just carry on doing that. That's that's fantastic. Thank you. And thank you for your friendship. Much appreciated. Well, right back at you. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Real People with Jerry Pives. Do you have a guest suggestion for Jerry? If you know someone who has an interesting life story, maybe that someone is you, then please get in touch. Jerry would love to get your feedback, so please send us a text on 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio to let us know your thoughts about his show. That's your message to 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Normal texting charges apply. Wow. So how interesting was that session with Chris? And welcome to the second part of this show. You're listening to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. What you're going to hear in this next section, which I call Reflections, you're going to hear some really interesting stuff. You're going to hear me talking about pilgrimage, the medieval practice of pilgrimage. You're going to hear me talking about forgiveness and the importance of processing our trauma. And as a special little bonus, I'm going to read out a few sections out of my book, Touching Trauma, Building Resilience, and in particular, a section on the physiology of trauma and the physiology of grief. So what reflections can we take from that session with Chris? Well, one of the overriding takeaways for me was this one simple word, gratitude. And I'm sure you've heard many, many people talk about gratitude, but didn't we just hear a living example of gratitude that seemed to infuse everything that Chris said? And in that session, we certainly travelled through some trauma, didn't we? Right from the way back in the 16th century, by the way, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre uh, was actually in the 16th century, not the 17th century. I, I'm ashamed to admit my history isn't very strong on that. But when the 
French Huguenots, the, the Calvinists, were massacred in France. Many fled all over Europe, and quite a few, as we learned a couple of weeks ago with René de Manchy, fled to Holland. Then we've also heard the story of these tough Boers in South Africa, the picture of these pioneers on their horse and carts looking for land to grow and to settle on. They were very much a dispossessed people. The conflicts and the wars and the death that they would have gone through, all the way to Chris growing up as a young lad in a farm in Zambia, and then moving to Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, into South Africa. Do you get the feeling of a displaced, wandering people? These are all beautiful places, but they're also places of enormous conflict and trauma. And Chris has traveled through them from a very young age. And what I will take away is this vivid description of his family farm in Zambia and their overnight loss of what amounted to 20 years of hard work and building what sounded like a beautiful community. Talk about political ideology, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, the loss of many, many farmers in that time impoverished this country. Where was the nuance? Where was the wisdom in sorting this out? Where were the elders? Another theme that came up, Chris's role as an elder. Where are the elders in our community? Now, don't get me wrong, I understand fully that there were many wrongs that needed to be put right. No dispute about that. But really, was that the best solution possible? And what did we learn from Chris? Well, I think we learned some answers to the question, how do we get on with life despite trauma? And Chris shared with us how most important to his family culture was a belief in being positive of seeing the value in everyday life. Don't look back. Holding, not surprisingly, gratitude for each day, for being alive, not dwelling on regrets. Recognizing that really it is the opposition in life, the opposition that we experience, that actually makes us stronger. And the importance of a sense of purpose. How often are we hearing that in these interviews? Find your purpose and make sure that it is a true purpose and not a purpose driven just by a vainglorious ego. And very often we can distinguish true purpose when that purpose involves serving others and serving our community. And that's why in this program, I'm only interviewing people who have contributed, just like Chris and his wife Uta have contributed to welcoming in members of their community every week to a very loving and accepting and open discussion of the real meaning that the Bible had to first century Judean people. A kind of history with Bible study or Bible study with history. <laughs> More than anything, though. I think most of us go for the tea and cakes afterwards. <laughs> and what were the top tips that we could take from this session with Chris? Well, 
Did you hear the value he placed on family, friends, and community? And we even had quite a little discussion about how we make sense of suffering, a real spiritual question. And I think at one point, Chris asked the question, not only who am I and what is my purpose, but who am I with God? So there was such a rich amount of value for me in that conversation. But I want to put a slightly different picture. One I actually believe Chris has gone through himself in some way. We didn't have time to delve into the personal journey that Chris went on. But do you remember him talking about visiting his farm and seeing the desolation and destruction of all the work that his father and his mother and his family put in? He went on a kind of pilgrimage by the sound of it. And he learned to forgive. Well, at the end of dealing with trauma, almost always comes forgiveness, whether or not it's been asked for. You see, last week I talked about trauma being a many-layered cake. When we survive trauma, we kind of shut the door on it and we get on. But unless we reopen that door at a later point and we start to process that trauma, then in fact, we don't move on at all. We carry the baggage of our undealt trauma with us. We carry it on our shoulders. It's like picking up baggage as we go on through life. Dealing with and processing our trauma is the most important aspect of trauma. But we could be forgiven for thinking that once we've survived the upset, the trauma, the loss, we should just get on. And although that sounded like what Chris was saying, I don't believe that is what Chris does. In fact, if ever I had a trauma that I was confronted with and I needed support, someone to lean on, someone to talk it over with, someone to share it with, Chris would be one of the first people I would go to here in my local Wanaka community because he understands trauma. And that's what I mean. If you haven't reached true forgiveness, and I don't mean a kind of faux forgiveness, a false forgiveness here. I mean a genuine, open-hearted, loving forgiveness, where you can see that the person or the people or the country that hurt you were all probably just doing their best. And if they weren't, that you have the capacity to forgive them nonetheless. In these programs, you often hear personal spiritual views. We heard Sandy Murphy's very spiritual view through her yoga practice. And in this session, we heard Chris's incredibly spiritual view on life. And although he never said it, I could hear a profound Christian view on forgiveness in which the voice of Jesus in the Bible says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, that's a tricky one when you want revenge and you want justice and you want to be righteously justified. So in some ways, what I'm talking about here is moving through trauma and reaching genuine forgiveness. And forgiveness is where you no longer carry it with you. You're free of it. And we must all find our personal route for that. But for me, the image of Chris's pilgrimage back to Zambia, back to that farm, to see the desolation and the destruction and to find forgiveness in his own words. Now there 
what we all saw was how trauma is processed. Now, we don't know the details, and I didn't pry. We don't know how Chris went through that. There wasn't time in this rich story of the tapestry of his life. But I'm reminded of the medieval practice of pilgrim, pilgrims and pilgrimage. Something about the physicality of a journey, something about going on a journey. For example, here in Wanaka, which is kind of a long way away from a lot of people in New Zealand, I invite people who inquire about therapy or whatever to consider taking a pilgrimage all the way down to Wanaka. And I'm not promoting anything here, but Wanaka used to be a place of Maori pilgrimage. The tribes from all around the coast would come inland to the beautiful place of Wanaka every year, and they would trade, and they would farm for the eels, the rich eels, confusingly called tuna in the Maori language. Took me a while to work that one out. I kept thinking people were fishing for tuna in Wanaka Lake. (laughs) But they also came for healing. This was a healing centre. And I don't know, I came here for my grandson, but I seem to have landed in a section of New Zealand that is really powerfully healing. Place has healing. Each of us often finds a place where we go for healing, a special river, a view on top of a mountain, and we go and we sit and we contemplate our lives and we we process. And I sometimes invite people to make a pilgrimage, to travel down here, to come down and be in this beautiful place. And, and I promise to give them a session every day over three, four, five days to make their healing a journey, a pilgrimage. I wonder how many listeners can think of going to a retreat or a course and it being a profoundly physical experience, the getting your packing together, your intention, your nervousness about where you're going. There's an edge to pilgrimage, isn't there? You're actually doing something with your body. And this is really important when it comes to processing trauma. And I guess that is what this reflection is all about. How do we process trauma? Well, one of the ways we process trauma is we have to return to it. We have to process it. We have to touch it. That's why I called my book Touching Trauma, Building Resilience. And you see, if we want to simplify trauma, then we just need to look at trauma as loss. All trauma, all trauma is about loss. Whether it is the shock and loss of a limb in a violent conflict, what we call shock trauma, or it's the developmental trauma of growing up in a place where things weren't really all that good. Indeed, New Zealand as a nation is a nation full of people who left places that weren't all that good to find a new place where they could create a better life. And that is as true of the Maori as it is of Europeans and people from all around the world. In many ways, you could consider New Zealand as a land of escape from trauma. Now, that's a vast generalization. But I wonder, when we track back, when we go through how we ended up here, I wonder if we'll find trauma. I wonder if you'll find some trauma. 
So then the big question is, how do we, as New Zealanders, process trauma? Well, one of the ways we need to do this is physically. Trauma sits in our bodies. We do need to reflect. We do need to talk. The coffee catch-up is at the heart. The therapist, the talking, the sharing your story, these are at the heart of processing. But so too is the way, the unique way, in which trauma latches onto our nervous system. As we survive, as we get on, it has to go somewhere. And it goes into our nervous system. And I just want to read you a very relevant section from my book. I wrote a chapter called The Physiology of Grief. Here's how it goes. Right from the beginning of this book, grief and loss has played a central role in our understanding of trauma. Indeed, all trauma comes down to what we have lost. And all recovery from trauma comes down to how well we have grieved for this loss. Trauma is about who we have lost or what has been taken from us. We must grieve to move on in our lives, and we must grieve physically. Otherwise, the body will carry this grief as a burden throughout the rest of our lives. In most Western cultures, we no longer encourage the physiological release of grief that can still be seen in many traditional societies. In these traditional cultures, the physical activities of wailing, chest beating and collapse are expected from all the close family members of the deceased. But in most Western cultures, the stiff upper lip has prevailed. We must be stoic and avoid showing too much affect, the outward display of emotion. In fact, we must demonstrate that we are unaffected. No outward display. Emotion is seen as a sign of weakness. But we can learn a great deal from the ritualistic grieving behavior of many traditional societies. You see, I just want to insert here. I should have written this in the book, <laughs> but I want to insert here that when we suppress our affect, our emotional display, a display of our emotion, we're confusing getting through the trauma with getting on with life after trauma. In the moment of trauma and loss, it's often very necessary to suppress our emotional reaction. But we do need to process that trauma. And there's a confusion between survival of trauma, which often does involve a display of non-effect, and processing, which requires the affect, the outward display of emotion. And they're two very different environments. And we should only show the affect in a safe place, shouldn't we, with a safe person. So what I'm about to share with you about how traditional societies process grief has to be understood in the light of this confusion. I'm not talking about how you survive trauma. I suspect many listeners know more about that than I do. But what I am talking about is how we deal with the impact on our nervous system of the suppression of affect. 
the stuff we couldn't feel at the time. And in this way, the animals in nature show us something. There are many, many videos of wild animals that have been traumatized. And once they're out of danger, what we see them do is vigorously shake. And indeed, there's a rather wonderful approach to releasing physiological trauma from the human body called TRE, T-R-E, trauma release something. I'm sorry, I don't know what the E stands for, despite having gone through sessions with it as well. And that was taken directly from nature, a rather beautiful approach. So here's what I wrote in my book about some very physiological ways that traditional societies have understood not only about grieving and processing trauma, but also about the importance of our physiology. So the first thing I'd write about is wailing. Here's what I write, wailing. Wailing tells us that what has happened is real. It cries out that something truly significant has happened, and we must honour this moment. We must not proceed with life as if nothing has happened. Wailing also brings people to us. People come to us. They reach out to touch us if we wail. They join with us. They hold us. And you know what? They wail with us. The mirror neurons of millennia kick in and the grief is passed around the tribe like someone being pulled out of the sea by a line of heroic people, all holding hands. It is shared. It is honoured. And it is dispersed throughout the whole tribe. There is a saying that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, I believe it takes a village to help a person grieve and process their trauma. In the UK, we saw this with the death of Princess Diana in 1997. Right across the UK, the whole nation erupted in a moment of shared tribal grief that someone truly special and beloved had been taken from us. It was a time of communal grieving. And after wailing, I go on to talk about rending, rending clothes, tearing clothes. Rending clothes is another traditional grief behavior that sends a powerful physiological message to our body. It tells our nervous system that someone has literally been torn from our lives or something or some ability. Think about the loss of a limb or a sense. We must acknowledge the reality of this loss or we will carry the damaging shadow of its suppression into the future through illness and misery. Now, I haven't talked much about that today, but I can absolutely say, and I'm sure many listeners can relate to this, how many illnesses follow grief. And as we get older, one of the reasons we die is because there's more and more unprocessed trauma in our nervous system. It's not old age. It's the fact that as we get older, we have to deal with and process more and more. You can get by without processing trauma when you're young. But when you get to the great old age of 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, 
you're carrying more and more trauma in your nervous system and things start to go wrong. It's not just aging, in my opinion. It's unprocessed trauma. Health, vibrancy, resilience comes as a result of releasing the trauma. And we release it by facing it. Words are simply not enough. We're talking about rending. Clothing that was once precious to us must be torn. And this clothing will not be mended. And if it is mended, it will never look the same. The scar of its tearing will always be known to us. And sometimes people don't just rend clothes. They shave their heads. And this signifies the same physical sense of loss. They lose their hair. The hair is shorn from the skull in the same way that a beloved person or element or aspect of our life has been taken from us. And just to insert here, in the context of what's been taken from us, very often what was lost was our childhood. What was lost was safety. What was lost was our normal development because of what happened to us. So that was rending. And then the third one I write about in this book, and by the way, this is me, Jerry Pives, talking about how we process trauma, probably the most important subject on the planet right now. And I'm reading from my book, Touching Trauma, Building Resilience. And the third one I talk about here is beating the chest. I wonder how many of you have seen that on TV or been a part of it. Beating the chest, I'm, I'm reading now, beating the chest is yet another traditional behavior that sends a powerful physiological message to our nervous system. What it tells us is that we must continue with life. The fist beats against the chest to remind us that we are literally broken hearted. Yet the fist also tells the heart it must continue beating. I just want to pause on that. This is a remarkable physiological wisdom. On the one hand, the fist strikes the chest. I'm not reading now. <laughs> this is me talking to you. On the one hand, the fist strikes the chest to say, I am brokenhearted. And on the other hand, it strikes it simultaneously to say, and I must stay alive. Back to my book. We must stay alive. We must resuscitate ourselves. Our instinct is to join the one who died by dying ourselves. So we must beat the chest to remind ourselves not only of our grief and our loss, but also that we must come through this. Whenever death arrives of someone close or something precious to us, there is a dangerous instinct to throw ourselves onto the pyre with the burning body. Studies have shown that there is the greatest risk of suicide when someone nearby has died. This is why the tribe must be there, to hold us back from self-destruction. We see this very vividly in people collapsing onto the ground in traditional funerals, and the tribe picking them up again and again. I must stay with the person I have lost and die too, the grieving body, the grieving nervous system, the grieving physiology says. No, 
We shall not let you. You must stay with us, cries the tribe, as they pick them up off the ground. So wailing, rending, and chest beating are all physiological behaviours that traditional societies required of family members when someone died. And while we're on the subject of grieving those we have lost, we're going to have to carry and process another grief that many have had in these terrible times we've been through, in which we were actually stopped by governments from getting together and grieving communally. Whatever grief we were going through compounded by the ludicrous idea that people get healthy by being alone. You'd have to be insane to think that that was true. So what is my takeaway from today's session with Chris? Well, my takeaway is the joy and love of life that happens when we properly process trauma. And I mean physically as well. And I've mentioned pilgrimage, but there are other ways. Sandy Murphy talked about the use of yoga to really engage with the body. I live my life using touch to help trauma release from the body. I mentioned a process called TRE, T-R-E. Trauma release something. I do apologize. (laughs) But any approach around trauma that relates to the body and to the physiology is very, very important. But so too is the simplicity of sitting down and holding hands in a cafe with someone who is processing their trauma. Just that reaching out and touching can make so much difference. So the takeaway is do please go back. And process your trauma as Chris clearly had. And remember, there are always professionals like me who've spent our lives learning not only to process our own trauma, but how to help other people process their trauma. And you never burden us when you come to see us. In fact, you fulfill our purpose in life. Remember how Chris talked about finding our purpose? Well, all the healers and therapists out there, that is their purpose. It's a kind of a weird one, isn't it, to sit with people in trauma. But that's what we do. There's no shame in seeking out therapists and healers. And try and do that face to face. Don't get caught up in this demonic idea that talking to someone on a computer screen is in any way like meeting someone face to face. I am an anti-Zoom therapist, just so you know. Take the journey. Find a local person. Please don't think that Zoom is anything other than a creation by a bunch of people, nerds, who don't understand what real human interaction is and what real healing involves. And if you can't do that, find a friend who is safe, who will hear you talk about the trauma you're carrying. And just in case any of all this talk of trauma has stirred you up, stay with me as very shortly, we're going to move on to one of the most amazing ways we all have to process trauma, music. (laughs) So music with meaning is the final segment we're going to go on to. But before we move on to that, where Chris is going to share with us some of the music that has been significant and important, and I suspect helped him process trauma. Before we do that, let's open up this week's mailbag. I do love to hear from you. So send in your questions and any feedback you have. You know, it can be a little bit lonely here. So let me know how I'm doing. 
And remember, if you know any unsung heroes or hidden gems in your local community that you would like to nominate for this show, then send me their email in an email telling me what they've done for you or your local community. And I will send them a simple invitation saying, quote, someone in your local community has nominated you to come and sit in the psychotherapist chair with me, Jerry Pipes. And you know what? (laughs) If they listened to last week's show, they'll be fine about saying no, won't they? So let's dive into this week's mailbag. So last week, I filled up our mailbag session with a special message for our heroic whistleblower, Barry Young, and I just want to let him know that we're still rooting for him and for the impact he's had worldwide. Absolutely amazing. Um, So I'm going to do a couple of weeks of mailbags here. So thank you all for writing in. It's been so heartwarming to hear from you. And Gary has written... Uh, loving your show and guests, Jerry. Thank you. Um, that's great, Gary. I'm glad you're enjoying it. That's really nice to hear from you. And Annie has written in saying, super, super show. Loved it. That's lovely. Thanks, Annie. Um, Janet from Fangarai has written another fantastic show, Jerry, with divine timing of many reminders. Big heart sign there. We'll have to catch the third segment on replay as I'm now off to meet with a local chap to hopefully help him challenge our local council who have an issue with truth signage on his property. Well, good for you, Janet. And uh, when did truth ever become a problem except to the demonic? (laughs) So there we go. Several of you have written in saying how much you are loving hearing songs that you haven't heard for a while or that have been old favourites. I'm not going to read all of those out, but lots and lots of feedback on on the different songs. And then Lisa writes, thank you for a delightful introduction. I'm really enjoying your show these past few weeks. Why shouldn't radio entertain and also gently heal and help? All the best, Lisa. Thank you so much, Lisa. And I could not agree more. So we get a lovely message from Sal and Jack saying that they're loving the show and the wonderful guests. And saying, one of them saying, I particularly liked listening to René de Monchy. What a lovely man. Wow. 50 years and so much experience only to be mandated. Unbelievably sad. Mandated within five to 15 minutes, I believe, is what he said. So, yes, that's an act of career vandalism, wouldn't you say? Um, I wonder who ever thought about that. Who thought of that idea? Strange idea that to destroy a career in 15 minutes after 50 years of dedicated service. There you have a man who is so wise and so good to hear. That's me, by the way, not uh, not um, Sal and Jack writing the last bit was me. Um, And then uh, they say that they wanted to listen to the music later on the repeats. And then when they when they played on the replays, they couldn't get the music. And yeah, I am really sorry about this. But if you want to catch the full show, the music, there's only three times in the week when you can catch it. So you plug in at 1 p.m. every Tuesday. That's when I do the show. Or you can hear all the music at the, as it, what we call a live replay or live broadcast later on that same day at 10 p.m. And then every Saturday from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Now, if you do only get to the replays and you want to know what the music is, then go to 
the uh, broadcasters page and you'll see all the tracks listed under the real people show listings uh, and sal explains how she's basically collecting a whole rcr music folder what a great idea i think i'm going to do that um, so then she says, the show is wonderful. Keep up the great work. Hubby and I are always so grateful to all the hosts and others behind the scenes. Members, RCR members that put a huge amount of time and energy into making our day-to-day -day lives that much more enriching. Thank you so much. Well, I couldn't agree more. Sal, um, the RCR team, uh, there's so many people working hard and, and working so dedicatedly to bring good Good radio, good information, good entertainment, and some very good music, we hope. So, yes, uh, do tell your mates about it. Yes, so we had a really interesting comment from Lee Curtis saying, Hi, Jerry. Your show is delightful, thought-provoking, and ever so entertaining. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome, Lee. As you well know, he says, one of Voices for Freedom's main mottos is keep hugging. Recently, I have been made aware of the importance of heart-to-heart -heart hugging, lifting your left arm and putting your head on the right of the huggies head, if you can work that one out, so that your hearts meet. It's a no-brainer, really, when you think about it, but it led me to wonder why most of us automatically lift our right arm and go left when hugging. Is that because most of us are right-hearted, or have we... <laughs> because it right-hearted. I meant right-handed. Or have we been conditioned? Hmm, I wonder. The extent to which the egomaniac or narcissistic greedy bullies, I wonder who they are, have gone to control our thinking no longer surprises me, he says. Well, me neither, Lee. <laughs> it doesn't even anger me. I just want to find ways to counter their programming so we can get back to being the loving, compassionate, caring, fearless souls that we are. I reckon this topic is worthy of coverage, and I can't imagine anyone better than you to do it. I look forward to hearing what you have to say, Jerry. Much love and gratitude, Lee Curtis. Wow, what a lovely message from Lee Curtis. Um, yes, what do we do? Well, you know, I agree with you. You know, the way to fight back is to live in our truth, is to just not give them the power, isn't it? That's what we do. We stand in our truth. We stand on the land. We stand in our bodies, and we stand in our truth. So all of that. Um, and our awareness always helps, isn't it, to be aware of when we're being played. I think more and more of us are becoming rather horrifyingly aware of how much we have been played and manipulated in the past. No matter, it's all awareness, it's all development, and it's all growth. And I don't think that's what they wanted, is it, Lee? <laughs> they really didn't want us to grow in our power and our abilities, but I think that's exactly what is happening um, as for the hug business, well, now that's very interesting. Um, I, I've run whole workshops on hugging and uh, for, you know, about 25 years have been training massage therapists and I always like to invite them into hugs. Um, certainly at some point we do a, what I call a hug process. And if I do come around running some workshops, I'll be, I'll be doing some of that for those that want to join in. But Really interesting when you start talking about hugs. I could probably talk for a long time, but if you're listening to this and you know this program, this is Jerry Pive's Real People, <laughs> you'll know I can talk about practically anything forever. So I'm a true talking head. Um, and so what we've got here is some very interesting ideas about hugging. What Lee is saying is if you throw your left arm up in the air and you stick your noddle 
to the right side of the person you're hugging, then your hearts will be meeting. Well, not always. Think of a seven-foot monster giant and a five-foot midget. You know, no, the, the, the heart will be roundabout on their chin, I suspect. And the whole business of hugging is, is amazing, really, because first of all, how do we know we want to hug? He's off. He's off talking about hugging. He's away. <laughs> How do we know we want to hug? Well, the way to offer a hug is just to hold your arm, arms out. Then what happens is the person you're offering a hug to responds and they put their arms out. And then the real fun begins because, you know, whatever direction, if if, if both their hands go under, as in their hands are kind of scooping me from underneath, I tend to reject that and grab one of their arms so that one arm is up and one arm is down. Because if you put both your arms underneath, unless you're hugging someone way taller than you, it's almost like you're in a a, a sort of a needy position, as in N-E-E-D-Y, nothing to do with the kneecap, but the needy position, uh, or your knees, in fact, but this is the needy position where you, as it were, the hands are going up the person back. And likewise, if both your hands are kind of going over them, like you tower over them and both your hands go over them, it's like you're overpowering them and you're in a kind of a dominant position. So for me, the most important thing is that one arm is up and one arm is down. And that, and, and if someone comes to me in either way, they come with both hands up, which is quite rare, or they come with both hands down, which is quite common, then I simply um, move one of my ha- arms underneath one of their down hands. The other thing is the height. The height makes a real difference. If you're little, you can't go any higher. I mean, it sounds very simple, doesn't it? But the number of tall people I see expecting small people to somehow go up on their toes and cre- crane their necks and crick their necks even in order to give a hug. Well, it's just a bit of a bit of a bit of a hoot, really. Um now if you're tall, you've got all sorts of mechanisms to go lower. You bend your bloody knees, all right? So, so uh, you know, the height thing is really important too. If you're small and you're always having to look up and crick your neck, uh, hugs aren't all that comfortable. And it's quite lovely when someone comes down and bends their knees and then you're then you are heart to heart at that point, shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart. And does it matter whether it's the left arm and the right arm? Well, I know some people would say so, but I don't. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you, Lee. I just think go on in, give a hug. And far more important than where you are in the hug, it's how much you soften and let the hug in. And that is the beginning of my hug workshop. And anyone running workshops wants to explore that, I'd strongly recommend it. So, Lee, that was wonderful. Thank you. What an interesting subject. And anyone else got any ideas about that? Tell me how wrong I am. Or maybe you've got another idea. So here's another one from Felicity. Uh, good morning, Jerry. I listened and absolutely loved the replay of your interview with Rene Demonchi. What a beautiful, romantic soul. And listening to the tapestry of his life was riveting and brought me to tears in places. Funnily enough, I too listen to Radio Luxembourg and share his eclectic taste in music. I will listen again. Thank you, Jerry and RCR. Oh, thank you so much, Felicity. And I couldn't agree more. Rene de Monchi was a gentle, romantic soul, full of male power, in my opinion. So he won't like me saying that. He'll be embarrassed that I've said that. 
Um, and then we get uh, an anonymous message saying, I presume, saying that uh, I should interview someone who's in Canada. <laughs> so that doesn't really work. This is all about Kiwis. Now, we may expand this program if there's lots of demand for it. But right now, I want to lift New Zealanders with fellow New Zealanders. And by New Zealanders, I mean anyone living on the land today. That's my definition of a New Zealander. So, and then finally, Heidi wrote in and said, uh, hi, Jerry, I just love to hear the conversations you're having. And I was so delighted to hear some classical music played on RCR. Yes. Thank you so much. Well, thank Rennie for that. Uh, and we've had a few others, I think, as well, with gratitude and blessings from Heidi. And then Heidi says, thank you so much for speaking openly about your relationship with God, the wisdom and truth from the Gospels, and how much God loves us. What an incredibly special show you are offering. Well, thank you so much, Heidi. Um, I'm happy to interview and talk to people of all backgrounds and faiths, but I make no bones about my own particular faith and find that the the life of Jesus and the story of the Gospels, the whole Bible, in fact, is the only book really worth reading these days. And for those of you that have spiritual leanings, I just want to say that get yourself clear on, on where you are in your spiritual journey. You probably are already, but we're coming, we're coming to a point in history, I believe. I'm going to get prophetic now. We're coming to a point in history where we're going to have to decide which side we're on. Who are we for? Who speaks to our heart? Who touches us in the center of our heart? And I believe that whereas when I was a young child or a boy or a young man, I felt there was lots of time. Now, I don't believe so. I believe the times are coming in and these are spiritual times and we are living through the most spiritual times ever. And I believe it is time for each of us to find God, to make peace with your God and to know where you are in your spiritual journey. And I'm always happy to share mine, and I'm very happy to share other people's journeys. Thanks ever so much, everyone. So lovely to hear from you. I cannot tell you how much it touches my heart to hear from you, to know that there are real people out there listening to this show. And while we're on the subject, at the moment, these are all people I am finding. And who am I looking for? Well, everywhere I go, everywhere I go, I see heroes and heroines, people in the local community who are doing beautiful, selfless things. Very few people ever thank them, but they are the salt of the earth. They are the people who keep our communities going. Their generosity is breathtaking, and they don't do it to be noticed. Now, when I walk around my local community, I meet something like, I have, think I have met about 40 people just in my little Wanaka community that I could interview. But where are all the people in New Zealand? Where are the people in your community? If you're listening to this, is it that you don't see them? In which case, open your eyes. Is it the case that you don't recommend them because you're embarrassed to? Well, don't worry, because they can say no. I'll just send an email. You send me their email. You send me an email with their email in it, and I will send them an invitation to which they can say no. And I want you to send me your reason for nominating them to sit in the psychotherapist chair. 
And for all of us, I wonder if we are walking around with our eyes sufficiently open to see the real heroes and heroines in our locality. Or do we wait for mainstream media to tell us that this celebrity or this person is famous? What happens if we decide in our local community that right next door to us, right in our street, are people who deserve validation, people who deserve recognition, people who carry wisdom that we could all learn from. It's not about fame. It's not even about recognition. It's really just about how much we can learn from those hidden gems and unsung heroes and heroines. So send them in. Send in their email address and tell me why you've nominated them. I'm looking forward to interviewing so many people from all around New Zealand. I reckon we've got enough wisdom to fill the whole world. We don't need to go outside of New Zealand. So there we go. Um, that's the mailbag. And so now let's get on with a really exciting part where Chris is going to share with us his seven tracks of music that rubber band him right back to important moments in his life or evoke certain periods of his life. And so because we're moving on to the music part of the show, let's get ourselves right in the groove with one of my favorite pieces of music, the Doobie Brothers playing quite appropriately, Listen to the Music. So welcome to this third segment of Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with me, Jerry Pives. And in this segment, which we call Music with Meaning, we're going to be talking to our guest, Chris Nell, about the music that takes him back to certain periods or events in his life. So thanks for coming back to do this Music with Meaning, Chris. Hi, Jerry. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, Chris... What's the first piece of music you've got for us? And tell us why it's an important piece for you. You know, I could have chosen amongst so many of those, that, that genre. But I always thought, you know, if I was stranded on the island alone and I only had one CD or one album with me, you know, who would I have? And I thought by myself, yeah, probably Neil Diamond. And... You know, it just represents the time that we grew up in. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll probably know that uh, I grew up in Africa and he was very popular there. And, um, yeah, just my teenage years, uh, early 20s, um, Neil Diamond was a hit. And uh, that's why I chose him. Wonderful. And where does it take you back to particularly in Africa? And what sort of memories does it evoke for you, Chris? Yeah, yeah. It's um, pretty much my school days. Um, we'd love to play all these music of the 70s and 80s. And I just remember being in a boarding school room with this big radio, this, you know, and my friends and I just going through this music. And that one would always come back, you know, with Neil. And uh, the specific song, really, I just love the rhythm of it. Um, the beautiful noise. So yeah, it just brings me brings back memories of boarding school years and good mates and good times. And just remind me whereabouts that was in Africa. Give me a geographical location. Or give the listeners. Yeah. yeah, that was in what's today Zimbabwe. In those days, it was still Rhodesia, and I grew up in a 
I went, went to school in Harare, which then used to be Salisbury. Right. Well, we're going to listen to uh, Neil Diamond's A Beautiful Noise. So you've just been listening to Beautiful Noise by Neil Diamond, the first choice and the first track by Chris Nell. Chris, that's a very interesting track of music for you to pick. I mean, I've never really thought about it, but I think it's the only piece of music I've come across where it's all about the noise of the city and the traffic. The words are all about just the noise of the city. I mean, what do you make of that? <laughs> it's weird because what I actually liked about the song was the rhythm. And uh, that was really nice. But I'm a country boy. I actually do not like the noise of the city at all. So good on Neil Diamond. I just enjoyed his song. But he can keep all those noises for himself. Thanks. <laughs> Well, the other thing is that I can remember loving so many pieces of music when I was young, and the words never really bothered me. I mean, when I got a bit older, the words became important, I think. But yeah. it's always like when we're younger, we just feel the music, we pick up the music, and it just kind of speaks to us in its own way, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it does. And you're so right. And it was only later in life, actually, we can sit and listen to the words and... <laughs> Oh, is that what it was about? You know, <laughs> as long as the rhythm was good, that's all that meant. You know, that's all that counted. <laughs> yeah, and a lovely, a lovely image of you at boarding school, you know, just listening. Um, those of us that uh, were fortunate or unfortunate enough, I think the latter probably to go to any kind of boarding school, probably can remember hours of boredom in boarding school for me. I thought it actually meant that I went there to get bored for a long time. I actually thought boarding school meant that I was bored because there was so much waiting around. And I don't know. Do you, I just remember hanging out with my mates like you, listening to music and just kicking the shoes and on the dust on the ground or whatever. Was it boring for you? <laughs> yeah, there were many hours of just boredom, you know, filling in, waiting for bells to ring and whistles to blow and yeah you know it's <laughs> absolutely that's what dictated our lives there <laughs> bells and whistles <laughs> yeah yeah but, you know good. but that's all of course you know leaving a bunch of boys to idle time is never a good idea you get it up to all kinds of mischief in that time so yeah we had our fun Great stuff. So let's move on to your second track, Chris, and tell us what your second choice is and why that one is important to you. Right. So my second choice is the foundation's Build Me Up Buttercup. And again, what a beautiful old song, wasn't that? I remember being in Cape Town in South Africa at a old year's Christmas party at the waterfront. And the whole world seemed to be there. It was such a vibe, so many people. And there was this band playing. And right at the stroke of midnight, they played this song. And it, they did it so well. And I just remember standing there and just drinking in the vibe and seeing people dancing and having a good time. And it just left one of those lasting impressions. You know, you get these like photos in time. And that was one of them. And um, I always knew the song, but that sort of pegged it in, you know, my memory bank. So it's just a memory of a really good time we had. So that was in Cape Town. How old were you at this memory? Oh, 
Oh, probably I was in my 30s, you know. Uh, yeah, so it's many years later that this happened. And what were you doing in Cape Town at that time, Chris? Oh, we just just having a good time. Just went down for a break for a holiday, hang out at the beach. Yeah, just having a good time there. It was awesome. Nice. Nice. So it's got all those associations for you as well. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we're going to listen to Build Me Up Buttercup by The Foundations. So you've just been listening to Build Me Up Buttercup by The Foundations, and you're listening to Music With Meaning. And my guest today is Chris Nell, and he's talking us through his special tracks of meaning from his life. So, Chris, what's the third piece of music you got for us? Yeah, the third piece is um, something from the Penguin Cafe Orchestra. I think it's one of these these bands that are not well known. Um, you'd probably find them somewhere in a very dusty shelf, you know, and uh, you, you look at this and say, what is this? You know, never saw this before. But once again, it was a time... Um, I was living in, in Richards Bay in South Africa, and um, it just suddenly hit, you know, became very popular amongst my group of friends, I would say. I probably never heard it on the radio, but, you know, they would play this whenever we, wherever we go. And it was just something unique, something different. And I thought it's, these guys were just so creative with their style of music. All of the music is good, but this specific one, um, an O2 found harmonium, you know, just sort of gets me this idea of, you know, going into a museum or somewhere's backyard or the garage and finding this old harmonium and dusting it off and just letting it play a tune for itself. You know, it's like the harmonium is suddenly starting to talk. And it's just so creative, so beautiful. Yeah. So that's why I chose the song. Well, when I saw this song on the list that you sent me, I just did a little jig because this is one of my favorite bands or pieces of music. And like you, no, this, I know all of their music. I love the Penguin Cafe Orchestra. And they came out of nowhere. I never heard them played by anyone except me and my mates. You know, we were a quirky bunch at the best of times. And wow, we just, you're right. It's this very kind of unique sound. And ultimately, I always felt just a purely joyful sound. There's something <laughs> intrinsically joyful to every yeah. piece of music. It's like when you listen, uh, I apologize to the listeners because we haven't played it yet, but I'm so excited by this. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you'll hear a lovely bounce to the music. And it just it's just like a joyful, and all of their music was like this. And they were very humorous. They were quite comical. Yeah, I was so thrilled that you chose this piece of music. So without further ado, let us play Music for a Found Harmonium by the Penguin Cafe Orchestra. Enjoy, everyone. So you've just been listening to Music for a Found Harmonium by the Penguin Cafe Orchestra. Um, Chris, I still can't quite believe that. I feel like we're members of a secret club. We've just found each other, both both lovers of Penguin Cafe Orchestra. I wonder how many listeners also know of this, this amazing, beautiful little orchestra. <laughs> I hope this will put it back on the charts. <laughs> 
Hey, maybe they'll give us a commission if everyone starts playing it again. Exactly. <laughs> um, look, you said you were down in Richards Bay at the time when, when this reminds you of that time when you were down in Richards Bay. Tell us what was going on in your life then, Chris. Give us a little bit of a picture. Oh, yeah. it's um, It was just a time when I was sort of doing my own business, you know, building contracting business. And um, it's just a lovely area, really hot, very, very hot and humid, very tropical. But, um, oh, you know, just lovely people. And, um, yeah, so I just have really good memories of those days by the sea. You know, I'd be living on the beaches. Uh, just the weather was just so phenomenal, you know, so it was good. It was a good time. I can hear real love for the country there when you talk of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So tell us, Chris, what is the fourth track that you've got for us to listen to now? Yeah, the fourth track is uh, a song, The Sounds of Silence. And uh, once again, that to me is just such a beautiful song. Um, it, it's the whole melody, the whole, oh, I don't know, just the creation of the song is so, so beautiful. And there's been so many artists who performed it, you know, so you could really go and choose. But there's one artist or, you know, group that really struck it to me so beautifully for me. And it's a group called Touch of Class, and they're also South African. And uh, if we play this now, you'll hear it's uh, there's just a powerful voice. There's something in this guy's voice that makes it come so alive to me. I just love the way that he's put it together. So, um, yeah, and it doesn't bring back, you know, I can't say it brings back a memory of this or that because the sounds of silence has been with us for many, many years. And, you know, we've always listened to this and it's always just beautiful. But once again, you know, it does bring back memories of many, many years growing up with the song. So let's go straight on and listen to The Sound of Silence, this version by The Touch of Class. So you've just been listening to The Sound of Silence by Touch of Class. Um, Chris, I'm very familiar with this rather haunting and beautiful song, but I'd never heard this version by Touch of Class. What an amazingly haunting but sort of powerful rendition of the song that is. And you're right, it doesn't take anything away from it. Yeah, it's just so unique. It's just so totally different from anything else I've ever listened to. It's, um, yeah, that's why I like it, I guess. Yeah, the famous version, of course, is the Simon and Garfunkel version. Um, that captivated me for many, many years. You know, and like you say, it's a song that can carry us. And and some songs do that, don't they? They kind of accompany us through many different stages of our life. Mm -hmm. I suddenly was captured by the words. The the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls. That lyric is amazing. The words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls. It's a very spiritual piece of music, isn't it? Because it's really Mm -hmm. about the unspoken things, the things, the truths that have not been spoken. Did the words have much meaning for you or was it just the tune that grabbed you? Yeah, it's the combination. You know, um, you can get beautiful words and, you know, an average tune and it doesn't go anywhere and vice versa. But this one, yeah, absolutely. It's just, uh, they just got it right. Beautiful words, beautiful song. Yeah. 
I don't know the story, no, no, of I don't song, know. but it sounded to me like it was almost the sound of one of the biblical prophets whose words fell on deaf ears or who was always trying to get the population to to change and to do the right thing and that they were all singing the, the population was not singing the song that they should have sung do you think that's just me reading into it or yeah. is that something that you you saw in the song as well yeah yeah no absolutely i see that but also you know the silence of the majority so many people wanting to have a voice and not being heard um uh, you know it's it's out there there's there's opinion there's a voice out there but it's just been squashed. Uh, nobody's listening. Those people, like it's like them crying to have a voice as well, but they are just silent. It's a sounds, but it's silent. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's it's sort of oppressing in a way. Just um, bring it out. Don't you know? Sort of virgin. Don't be silent anymore. You know, speak up. <laughs> don't be one of those silent thousands of voices. Oh, I really like that way that you've read those lyrics and and heard those lyrics. And of course, what a beautiful message for these times, eh? Yeah, indeed. You know, after what everyone's, you know, after what and no one's allowed to have a different opinion to everyone else. And if someone doesn't agree with you, you're supposed to cancel them and never, never speak to them again as if they don't exist, if they don't agree with you. And the algorithms on the, on the Google and everything mean that people are only getting the videos and the programs that agree with their views. It's, uh, it's, we need people to speak out with all their different voices, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we live in a time where, it's just the loudest voices that's being heard. And, you know, the rest, are, it feels like the rest are being dictated to. And your opinion doesn't actually matter. Uh, we're telling you how to think. But meanwhile, there's all those voices, you know, shouting out in silence. Um, it's So it's, it's a noise of silence that it's so sad, but it's so important that people realize that that is the case well people do also talk about the dangers of remaining silent don't they and mm. what's that saying um bad things happen when good people say nothing or do nothing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah i feel like that's really relevant to our times at this moment yeah yeah i hope people are encouraged to to speak up and say so- what's right and do what's right so if you just tuned in, you're listening to Music with Meaning on Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. And my guest today is Chris Nell. And Chris, tell us what your next piece of music for us is. Yeah, so the next one I chose was, um, as you can see, I'm going to more serious stuff here. And this is Laudate Dominum. And uh, it's a piece by Mozart. And this specific piece is sung by Barbara Hendricks. What I love about this is, well, the words are so beautiful, but also it's the powerful voice. I also just love classical, beautiful, strong, well-trained female and male voices. Um, to me, that is so powerful. It's just in a class apart from your normal pop singers, you know. Um, I feel like our modern-day singers have lost something um, with regards to the power of the voice, the power of expression. 
And uh, so every now and then I love to listen to, I wouldn't say opera, but specific areas of operas um, like this one that I've chosen. And as I said, the words are so, so beautiful because this echoes with my personal faith. And the words are, praise the Lord, all you nations, praise him, all you people, for his loving kindness has been bestowed upon us. And the truth of the Lord endures for eternity. And so it goes on. And um, yeah, I, I just want to share this song and just listen to Barbara's most beautiful voice and the choir that accompanies her. Um, yeah, I hope the listeners enjoy this one. Let's have a listen. So that was Laudate Dominum by Mozart, and it was sung by Barbara Hendricks. So, Chris, we're coming to the last track of your selection. I must say that was a really beautiful piece of music we've just been listening to. Um, where are you taking us for our final track? Yeah, the last one I chose is is very dear to my heart, you know, especially now with the conflict in Israel between Israel and the Palestinians. There's a group called One for Israel, and this is a group of people. They are Jews and Arabs, Jews and Palestinians, who absolutely cooperate so beautifully together in brotherly love, true brotherly love. And this they all are bound by one thing, and that is their faith. And um, the work they do, you know, just for reconciliation, bringing the people together, bringing the two opposite, you know, um, Jews and, and Arabs together, it's a big thing that they're doing. And they also put out uh, music, really beautiful music, um, you know, just as part of their ministry. So this song is sung in English, Hebrew, and Arabic, you know, by Jewish and uh, Palestinians. So, and also just the way, it's, it's a common song amongst Christian circles with the most beautiful words. But once again, they're just putting their Middle Eastern touch to it, you know, that, that really unique touch of Israel, of the Arabic world that I absolutely adore. I just love it. I think it's so beautiful. So this song is just, you know, it's the cry of my heart that they would find peace um, in true faith. Because right now, you know, and this is just my opinion, but I'm afraid there is no political solution to the problem. Everybody's trying to find a political solution. There is none. Because it is deeply, deeply rooted in a spiritual battle. And it's opposing religions um, that's that's set up against each other. Um, and you know, it's it's all about certain aspects of Israel that everybody wants to dominate, including the West, which is it won't work. So this is why I love the ministry. This is why I love the song, because it just shows you what is possible. Chris Nell. We're going to complete our music with meaning, going out with this rather beautiful and in some ways very healing integration of culture, religion, um, spirituality. And even in the music of this group, you hear, as you said, this 
remarkable Middle Eastern flavor. It's a marriage between kind of Western and Eastern music, but the Eastern music stands strong. It doesn't just hide away in the corner. It's really so strongly there. And Chris, I think it's so appropriate to finish our time with you with this piece of music, because in many ways it represents so much of what is so important to your own heart. The fate of Israel, the fate of the Jews has been a major part of your life's journey and a big part of your commitment. So, Chris, I just want to thank you for sharing your life on this program with me and the listeners and for guiding us through a really beautiful selection of music and also thoughtful discussions around really important subjects in in our lives. Chris, Nell, thank you so much for giving us this music with meaning and for spending time with me, Jerry Pives, in the psychotherapist chair. Thank you, Jerry. My pleasure. You've been listening to the One Israel team singing in Christ alone in English, Hebrew, and Arabic. And that was the final choice of Chris Nell, who runs the Zula backpacking facility in Wanaka with his wife, Uta. And they also run a Bible class every Monday night for anyone who wants to delve more deeply into the meaning of the Gospels to first century Judea. And because I've got a few minutes left, I was so excited by the Penguin Cafe Orchestra that I'm going to sign off with their classic title song, Penguin Cafe Single, led by the inspirational and highly lovable, but somewhat quirky, Simon Jeffs. So this is me, Jerry Pives, signing off by wishing you every blessing, and may you have a wonderful week. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Who has influenced you the most? How has your background contributed to who you are today? And how do you deal with stress and trauma? Immersing myself in nature is probably my first go-to. Sometimes with just a kind word, just a, hey, it's okay. Join registered psychotherapist and author, Jerry Pives, as he invites New Zealanders from all walks of life into the psychotherapist chair. Check out reality with others, but also check out reality with yourself. Listen in as they open up about their lives, their family's history, and what drives them. I had already kind of been through a massive trauma, so I already felt kind of strong and equipped at the beginning to deal with something that was out of my control. Prepare to be entranced as Kiwis open up about their heritage, their lives, and the understanding of their place in the universe. Frankly, I know very few people who are not struggling to some degree or other in these highly traumatic times that we're living through. Tune in to Real People with Jerry Pives, Tuesdays at 1 p.m., right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio.